Hey there, podcast listeners, and welcome to this week's Physics Central podcast. I'm Mike Lucibella. It's my favorite time of year again, the annual Ig Nobel Prizes, which recognize science that makes you laugh, then makes you think. They're given to research that might sound frivolous at first, but really has some merit behind it. And before this year's awards, I had a chance to talk to their founder, Mark Abrams, to find out where these wacky prizes came from. I had just become the editor of a science magazine and started meeting all kinds of people who'd done things that were hard to describe. Some of them were funny and they, they were thought-provoking. And with a lot of them, I started wondering at, at the idea that these people are going to go their whole lives and almost nobody will ever know that they existed or they did this thing, whatever this thing is. And it's a shame. Somebody should do something for them, something small, and then realize, well, we can do something small. So we started the Ig Nobel ceremony in 1991. Uh, first four years uh, were at MIT, and then we moved it down the street to Harvard and uh, kept growing and growing. Was there a particular paper in the beginning or a particular piece of research that really kind of, that, that you remember you know, looking at and saying, this needs to be recognized in some way? Oh, no. It, it, was, the, it was the realization that there were so many papers that have that quality. And from everywhere, from every field of research, even informal research, every part of the world pretty much, it's just everywhere. It's, it's like gold lying in the streets. The motto of the Ig Nobles is um, science that makes you laugh, then makes you think. Um, wh what do you mean by that? It's not just science, it's anything. A lot of it is science, though. Pretty much everything is science, one way or another, if you choose to look at it that way. To win a prize, something has to have the quality that when somebody, anybody, first encounters it, first hears a clear description of it, it's funny. That's their first reaction. No explanation for that. It just is. And that a week later, it's still in their head. It's still bouncing around in their head, and they, they don't want to stop thinking about it. They want to find their best friends and tell them about it and argue about it. So it's got to have that dual quality. A perfect example of which was the winner of this year's Probability Prize. Bert Tolkamp received it for a paper titled, Are Cows More Likely to Lie Down the Longer They Stand? I asked him why anyone would want to keep track of how long a cow stands up. So we looked at animal behavior and changes in animal behavior because we were very interested in early detection of health and welfare problems in cows. The idea is to understand how a healthy cow behaves so it's easier to pick out one that's going lame two or three weeks before the cow is recognized as having a lameness problem, the cow starts to eat twice as fast or three times as fast and her meal duration shrinks to about half of the normal size. And we have made a simple algorithm that says what is the behavior of the cow today compared to two and three weeks ago if then feeding time goes down. Uh, a message is sent to the computer for farm staff to say the next milking, check this cow because she has probably a leg problem. And the farms are increasingly bigger in size. Farm staff is le less and less because more and more is automated. So there is less contact between animals and staff and therefore health problems are not recognized very easily. And we think there's a great future in using sensors. Sensor technology is becoming very much cheaper, so you can equip animals with sensors that measure their movements, their behavior in terms of feeding behavior, drinking behavior, lying and standing behavior, and this paper was about lying and standing behavior. Um, briefly, explain uh, a little bit about the algorithm that you developed and 
um, how you're able to, to use that to, to tell when a cow is looking lame? Well, what the program does, it, it calculates a means and a standard deviation of the average behavior over a three-week period. It's a rolling average. As soon as uh, an observation is obtained that deviates more than two standard deviations down from the mean, then this cow is flagged up. And that way we can identify more than 80% of animals with problems many days before farm staff can recognize it. Brian Crandall won the archaeology prize for his unorthodox undergraduate work. Well, uh, the paper is titled Human Digestive Effects on a Micromammalian Skeleton, which basically means we um, convince someone to eat a shrew, we let them digest it, and we collected what came out the other end, filtered out the bones, and analyzed them. And so, just to be clear, when you say shrew, you mean the small mammal? I mean the small fuzzy thing that looks like a mouse that's about four, four inches long. Yes. Now, why in the world would you have someone eat a shrew? This is uh, basically um, experimental archaeology. You find small mammal bones all over the world in archaeological sites. You find thousands of them. And the question is, when you dig them up, why are they there? Um, they're fantastically useful because they tell us all kinds of things about paleoclimate and uh, human settlement patterns, but were they food or not? And historically, especially decades ago, there's a cultural bias against small mammals as a food source. So you'd dig up a site, you'd find 10 deer bones and 1,000 mouse bones, and you'd say they're eating deer. That's not necessarily the case. You know, th this, this is food for people all over the world today. There are people on every continent who eat micromammals um, and who prefer to eat micromammals, so why dismiss them as a food source in the past? So, so what did you find? What were some of the effects of um, eating a shrew? What, what was the effect on the shrew and the person doing the eating? The person doing the eating um, did just fine. Uh, the person who did the collecting and the analysis, which was me, deserves a lot of credit. That was a crappy job. <laughs> it turns out that human's digestive processes and stomach acids do quite a number on the small bones of a shrew. There was massive damage to the skeleton. Um, a lot of the bones disappeared entirely. A lot of the bones looked like they'd been melted in a furnace. Um, for example, we only recovered four teeth. It's about 20% of the teeth. We only recovered one mandible out of two. That's one of the most dense bones in the body. And so were people eating the small animals? Uh, people have been eating the small animals. Um, this, uh, this paper has been cited almost 40 times, um, 15 times in the past three years. Um, so people are using this to analyze remains they find in the ground. Alberto Minetti and his team won the physics prize this year. Our research was about understanding how humans could run on water. It's something I've always wondered myself. To find out, Minetti suspended a willing test subject with plastic fins strapped to his feet over a small wading pool and told to run as fast as he can. The harness holding him up was connected to a special machine that could counteract the pull of gravity and simulate the feel of different planets and moons. And we found that uh, for gravity lower than 20% of the Earth gravity, you can stay afloat, only if you, for a few seconds, 10-15 seconds, because it is a very anaerobic exercise. But certainly we can run afloat. Where did you get the idea to, um, to, to look into this? Well, uh, we knew that lizards and some birds, with the western grape in particular, they can run on water even on the Earth with no normal gravity, but humans couldn't do that. So when water was found on the moon, at, they, they said that water is on the, on the poles, on some craters down there. Immediately the idea came out. 
lizard and bird can do that on Earth. The humans can do that. On which planet can we do that? So is it the buoyant forces? Is it the surface tension? Um, what is it that, that's suspending a person or a lizard when they're running, up, running along the water? Whenever a, a, a lizard pushes on the water, they create a, a, a water hole that tends to fill and, and tend to seal. In, on the Earth, it seals very fast. But on low gravity condition, it could seal at, at a slow speed. The very important trick is to remove your limb before the water hole seals. Lizards are very good at that. It, even Western grebes, those kind of birds, humans couldn't do that on Earth. But on, the, on those planets, that could be done because water will reseal in a much slower than, than here. The study helps us also to understand what is happening on Earth, actually, for those species that are able to run on water. But certainly, it, I remember that NASA was searching for leisure activity for astronauts and on a pressurized dome with a swimming pool, if there is water on that planet, people could get fun just by running on water. Now, something to think about when work finally begins on the first lunar water park. Thanks also to Deborah Henson Conant, whose electric harp that you hear now opened the show. You can see photos of her performance, the winners, and the rest of the awards ceremony, as well as find our other podcasts and resources at www.physicscentral.com. Thanks for listening.